Our scripture reading this morning is taken from Matthew's Gospel, Matthew chapter 19, verses 13 to 15. And our sermon passage at long last picks up back in 2 Samuel where we left off, believe it or not, uh, not my intention, but we left off, I believe, on December 19th in the previous passage from 2 Samuel chapter 12. We'll pick up at verse 16. I'll start reading at verse 15, um, but read uh, beginning at verse 15. Our sermon passage is 16 to 23. So 2 Samuel 12, 16 to 23. But first, our scripture reading, Matthew 19. Verses 13 to 15. This is the word of the Lord. Then children were brought to him that he might lay his hands on them and pray. The disciples rebuked the people. But Jesus said, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and went away. Now turning to 2 Samuel chapter 12, beginning at verse 15, although our sermon passage begins at verse 16 and goes through verse 23. Then Nathan went to his house, and the Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and he became sick. Therefore David sought God on behalf of the child, and David fasted and went in in and lay all night on the ground. And the elders of the house stood beside him to raise him from the ground, but he would not move, nor did he eat food with them. On the seventh day, the child died. And the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead, for they said, Behold, while the child was yet alive, we spoke to him, and he did not listen to us. How then can we say to him, The child is dead? He may do himself some harm. But when David saw that his servants were whispering together, David understood that the child was dead. And David said to his servants, Is the child dead? They said, He is dead. David arose from the earth and washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes. And he went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. He then went to his own house. And when he had asked, they set food before him and he ate. Then his servants said to him, What is this thing that you have done? You fasted and wept for the child while he was alive, but when the child died, you arose and ate food. He said, While the child was alive, was still alive, I fasted and I wept, for I said, Who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live? But now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him. But he will not return to me. This ends the reading of God's most holy, inspired, infallible, inerrant word. Let us pray. Our gracious God, we are thankful for your word. We are thankful that it is you speaking to us. We're thankful, O Lord, that we do not have to listen for your word as Scripture is read. Because when Scripture is read, you speak. It is your voice. We are grateful for your word. We're grateful for the comfort that it brings. 
But we're also mindful, dear Lord, that there are portions of your word that evoke sorrow, that remind us of painful events in our past. And Lord, for many, this passage is one of them. To read about the death of David's and Bathsheba's son. We pray, dear Lord, that it would prove to be a great comforting balm to us. We pray, Lord, that you would use your word as it's read and as it is about to be preached, dear Lord, for the blessing and the benefit of your people. We pray that you would instruct us and that your spirit would guide the one who preaches and would bless those who hear with understanding. We pray that your preached word would grow us into a deeper understanding of who you are. That as your word is preached, you would help us to know at least a little better all that you have done for your people. So please bless us now, O Lord, we pray. In Christ's holy name. Amen. As I mentioned, it's been a while since we were in 2 Samuel, believe it or not. It wasn't my intention. Sometimes... The providences of the Lord, many times, they're unexpected. And so here we are at the end of January, over a month since the last time we were in 2 Samuel. But I doubt that anyone needs much in the way of a reminder regarding the preceding few passages because they have to do with David's sin against Bathsheba and the Lord. This section in 2 Samuel, coupled with Psalm 51, are some of the the most well-known passages of Scripture because they give the history, the, the uncomfortable ugly history of David's heinous sins as well as the glorious picture of God's forgiveness that he gave to David. But even when there is forgiveness, there are often but not always consequences that the sinner must face in this life. And you perhaps know this from your own experience. You see it in our society. There are people who have committed heinous sins, murders, They come to faith in Christ in prison. That doesn't mean that their sentence is automatically commuted, that they're automatically pardoned for what they have done. And so murderers who know Jesus will still have to face years on death row and ultimately execution for their crime. I suspect that every mother and father who have lost a baby during pregnancy has had anxiety over whether something that The mother might have done that maybe she did resulted in the baby's death. If some of you here suffer from that type of anxiety, God's grace is sufficient for you. And hopefully this passage in the sermon will be a balm for you. But David positively knew what he had done. He knew that his illicit relations with Bathsheba, his plot to murder Uriah and its success in being carried out led to the death of his infant son. He knew, in the words of Nathan the prophet, that he was the man. He was guilty. And he would live with regret for his sin and for his crimes for the rest of his life. There would always be an empty place in his home where his son should have been. How does the weight of all this not crush David? 
There are parents whose lives have been destroyed by the death of a child through no, no fault of their own. How could David possibly go on knowing that his sins caused the death of his son? Now, Psalm 51, which we read as a response of reading back in December, for that reason we didn't read it this morning, it helps us to understand how David can go on. He prays to the Lord to purge him with hyssop. He shows gratitude to God for exposing his sins and purifying them from him. And he says, let the bones that you have broken rejoice. David knows that the Lord is the one who has broken him as a result of his sin. And David understands that the Lord's discipline is good, even though it at times can be very painful. But David also rests in the covenant love of his heavenly Father. Psalm 51 verse 1 says, Have mercy on me, on, on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. And you may remember from earlier sermons, earlier passages, that the word translated steadfast love in Psalm 51.1 is the same word, chesed, that we've encountered before. And that we can understand that word to be referring to, to be talking about God's covenantal love. And so David rests in the fact that God will not break the promises that he has made with David. But David also understands that God's promises, his covenant, that they weren't just made with him, with David alone, but to all of God's people. He understands and trusts in the fact that, as Acts chapter 2, verse 39 puts it, the promise is for you and your children. David believes this. He understands this. He knows with deep conviction that God loves children of the covenant. And this knowledge gives him deep comfort as he experiences the loss of his son. As we work our way through the sermon, I would ask you to hold this thought in front of you. The covenant between God and his people is unbreakable because God keeps his as well as our part in the covenant. Let me say that again. The, the covenant between God and his people is unbreakable because God keeps his as well as our part of the covenant. Well, the first part of the sermon, there are three is seeking the Lord. The second, the brief point in the sermon, substitutionary death. And the third, judgment of charity. Again, seeking the Lord, that's the first part of the sermon. Substitutionary death is the second, and judgment of charity is the third. Excuse me. Let's turn to the first part of the sermon, seeking the Lord. Back in chapter 11, verse 27, we read that after Bathsheba had completed her period of mourning for her husband Uriah, David brought her to his house and she became his wife and bore him a son. And this was grievous. The sin was grievous. It was heinous in the sight of the Lord. And then when David brings the wife of Uriah into his house to be his wife, it's a great offense to the Lord. And because of the heinous sin that resulted in this son of David being conceived, Nathan, after confronting David with his sin in the early verses of chapter 12, tells David in verse 13 that the Lord has put away his sin. And because of that, 
he, that is David, will not die. But then he says in verse 14 that the child will die. Now this sounds terribly unfair. And our temptation here may be to rise up in judgment against the Lord. The child has done nothing wrong, done nothing to deserve death. So why is the Lord punishing the child, this baby, instead of David? Now the passage doesn't spell out all of the details of why God spared David's life, other than that he had put away his sin. But God has made a promise to David that he would make a dynasty out of his house. And also, and this isn't a minor consideration, David was the highest law in the land. It's possible that David might have struck David down with a sword, as Samuel did to Agag in, in 1 Samuel chapter 15. But it's unlikely. David was the head of the army. And if David would not lift a hand to strike Saul because Saul was the Lord's anointed, it's unlikely that Nathan would have done so to David. But here's the problem. The Old Testament law demands death in the case of a murder. And as, David, as Nathan tells David in verse 14, he had utterly scorned the Lord. Or as one author put it, he had done something that had caused the name of the Lord to be openly put to shame by this crime. And the Lord would immediately reveal his judgment in the death of the child born to David and Bathsheba. So David had told David what was going to happen with his son, and in verse 15 we read that the child became sick. Now we're not told how long it had been since the child was born, but it may have been as long as a few months between the birth of the child and when the child fell ill. We can guess at that because Nathan had to come from wherever he was to David, and it would have taken at least some time. So the child is perhaps a few weeks old to a few months old by this time. But when David's son became sick, we read in verse 16 that David sought God on behalf of the child. And David later in our passage explains the reason that he sought the Lord. He says in verse 22, while the child was still alive, I fasted and I wept. For I said, who knows whether Yahweh will be gracious to me that my child may live. So David was seeking the Lord to plead with him to spare his son's life. And we read that David did so for seven days. He did for a full week. He lay before the Lord in the dust of the ground, and he begged him to spare his son. He's pleading with the Lord. He's, he's offering up prayers and supplications to the Lord, but he's also in mourning. One commentator writes, David's behavior during the week before his son's death is mourning in every respect. And by expressing so much woe, David actually experiences an, an important part of his own mourning process before the actual death. And this is the behavior that the elders of, of his house, as verse 17 puts it, witness. They see David in mourning. They see him prostrating himself before the Lord on his face on the ground. They don't understand that David is wrestling with the Lord on behalf of his son. They see all of the signs of mourning and think that that is all that David is doing. So verse 16, it says that David fasted and he went in and lay on the ground. And verse 17 says that the elders tried to raise David from the ground, but he would not let them, nor would he eat the food that they offered to him. He was in mourning. He was fasting. He was petitioning. He was praying that the Lord would spare his son. And that brings us to the second part of the sermon, substitutionary death. 
Now, verse 18, we read that on the seventh day, the child died. And David's servants were afraid to tell him because of how depressed and sorrowful he appeared to be. They were afraid he might hurt himself when he heard the news of his son's death. But David became aware of his servants, that they were witness, uh, whispering among themselves. And in verse 19, he just asks them point blank if his son has died. And when he was told that his son was dead, we read in verse 20 that he arose, he washed himself, he anointed himself, he changed his clothes, and he went into the house of the Lord for worship. Now, this wasn't the, the temple. It was a temporary structure that David had set up in Jerusalem prior to Solomon coming along and building the actual first temple of Israel. After he had worshipped the Lord, he went to his own house and he asked his servant for food. His servants seem almost incredulous now at David's behavior. It's so markedly different than the way it had been these previous seven days. They thought that he was going to descend further into despair, but he was now apparently, in their estimation, acting as if nothing had happened. How could this be so? Those of you who have suffered the loss of a loved one. It's difficult to understand how David could do this thing. It doesn't mean that David's mourning is totally over. It doesn't mean that he no longer experiences grief at any point later on in his life. I don't think that's humanly possible for anyone. It's not healthy, certainly. David knew what Nathan had told him about what, what would happen to his son. But he spent seven days pouring himself out to the Lord in supplication, fasting and weeping, hoping that perhaps the Lord might be gracious to him and let his child live. David hoped that his son would not have to die in his place. But that is what happened. David's son died because of David's sins. Now we need to be very careful here. We could very easily and swiftly veer off into error. Heresy. David's son's death did not save David. But David's son certainly took David's place. That's clear from the passage. The death of David's child was substitutionary. It wasn't an atonement for David's sins, but it was vicarious because he died in David's place. He died because of David's sins. And this passage, even though it doesn't teach substitutionary atonement, it helps to teach us and all of God's people the principle of a substitute for us. It teaches us the principle that someone can stand in the place of another. It points forward to another son of David who would come and take the place of all of God's people, dying for sins that he did not commit. But in his case, this greater son of David, his death was a substitutionary atonement for our sins. His death did have the power to save. His death is what brought David life. His greater son, Jesus Christ, is the reason that the father was able to put David's sins away from him. And so we get a foreshadowing of Christ, a type of Christ in the death of David's son, in our passage, and we get a glimmer of hope in verse 23, and that leads us to the third and final and longest section of the sermon. David continues to explain his change in behavior 
to his servants in verse 23. Having told them about his fasting and his supplications to the Lord, he says in verse 23, but now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. Now, a couple of things that we need to understand about this. David and Bathsheba's son, he had lived long enough that he would have received the Old Testament sign and seal of the covenant, which is circumcision, right? That was done on the eighth day following the birth of a male child. He received that sign because he was born into God's covenant people, his covenant community. He received the sign and the seal of the covenant. And David, in our passage in this verse, he expresses the hope of the covenant that God made with his people, which is for you and your children, Acts 2.39 says. David expects that he will see his son again, not in this life, but in the next. And it is that hope, it's his hope in the covenant that God has made with his people that helps to lift David from his sorrows. It is a great comfort to us when we lose a loved one to know that they are with the Lord and that we will go someday to be with them. We can't bring them back, but we can go to them. Now this is a great deal of weight that we're trying to put onto one brief verse. But can it support the belief that the infant children of a believing parent or parents will go to be with the Lord if they should die? Probably can't support all of that weight. It would be unfair to this passage to, to say that it does, but I think it points us in that direction. We need to look at other passages that give us greater clarity, that help us to interpret this brief line. He will not come to me, but I will go to him. And so we know, for instance, that ordinarily, though not exclusively, God works through families to bring salvation. His Old Testament covenant people. In Genesis chapter 17, verse 7, God tells Abraham, And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And there's a few verses later in chapter 17, verse 19 of Genesis. What does God say? He's talking about uh, the fact that Abraham and Sarah are going to have a son. He tells Abraham to name that son Isaac. And he says, I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. Already you see the succession. The covenant that God made with Abraham and promised he would make with his children, he makes with Isaac. He promises this. And so the faith, the, the true religion as it were, though not perfectly in every instance, passes from one generation to the next uh, through the ages down to our day. N not perfectly. And so there are, there are some of you, perhaps many, who grew up in a household that was not a believing household, that, that, where your parents weren't followers of Christ. That's an extraordinary event and a wonderful event. And praise the Lord, it has happened. But ordinarily... God works through families. He did it in the Old Testament. He does it in the New. He does it in our age today. In the Old Testament, male children born into God's covenant people were to be circumcised, which was the sign and the seal of the covenant. 
That is B.B. Warfield writes, and if you don't know B.B. Warfield, you should get to know B.B. Warfield. He writes, circumcision, which held the place in the old covenant that baptism holds in the new, was to be given to all infants born within the covenant. Baptism must follow the same rule. This and only this can determine its conference. Is the recipient a child of the covenant with a right, therefore, to the sign and seal of the covenant? We cannot withhold the sign and seal of the covenant from those who are of the covenant. Warfield believed that covenant children may be presumed Christian. Members of Christ. It's a key word there, presumed. We don't know that they're Christian. We don't know that they're regenerate. We don't know that they are saved. But we may safely, confidently presume those things about them. Why? Because God works through families. And he makes promises to one generation and the subsequent generation and generations after. And so we don't know with certainty that our covenant youth are regenerate, but we may presume that they are or that they will be. And so Christian parents have two choices. You can choose to treat your children like Little heathens, you can do that. And sometimes, sometimes they deserve being treated that way, we must all say. Or you can treat your children like little Christians. Those are your cho- choices as a Christian parent. You can treat them like those who don't know the Lord. Or you can treat them like new disciples of the Lord. Treating them like disciples of the Lord is what Warfield called the judgment of charity which is the presumption that our covenant children are saved. It's a presumption, brothers and sisters. It's not a firm knowledge. But what's the opposite? You presume they're not saved. You treat them like heathens. We don't know this infallibly. Only God does. That's why it's a presumption. Most of the time when we presume something, it's a negative, right? We presume, for instance, we hear of some heinous... Crime committed by someone we don't particularly like and automatically we presume that the person is guilty before they are judged. They're guilty of that crime before the trial has commenced. Even though in this country's legal system there is supposed to be a presumption of innocence until proven guilty. Far too often with our children we do the same thing. We presume not so much their guilt... Because we know that all are guilty and deserving of judgment, we presume their condemnation. We start with that as our basis for how we treat them. We presume their condemnation up until that time that they make a public profession of faith. And then all of a sudden, oh, wonderful, they're Christians now and we treat them like Christians. But what happens 5, 10, 15, 20 years down the line? They walk away from the faith. And our confidence that they were saved, was it misplaced? Because even there with a public profession, you still must presume that it is a sincere profession of faith, that the person truly believes in Christ as his or her Savior. But we ought to presume, not based upon our children's words or their deeds, but upon God's covenant promises that our children are Christians until they prove otherwise and we treat them accordingly. Going about the business of making them disciples. 
That is, after all, what Jesus commanded his, commanded his disciples in the Great Commission to do. Going and making disciples, baptizing them into the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that Jesus commanded his disciples. All of those words are participles. Going, teaching, making disciples, baptizing in other words, the process of making disciples is a process. It's not a one-time thing. Billy Graham learned that. In his, or the early days of his crusades, he would go into a town. He would come in. He would preach the gospel. He would leave. And all of these people, brand new Christians, because of, of the powerful way that the Spirit used his preaching to bring about conversions, they were left with nothing. And the guy that was responsible, in a sense, in an earthly way of speaking for their salvation is gone. And so early on, Billy Graham realized he had to partner with churches. He had to try to get these people in churches. Why? Because making a disciple is not converting them. It's a lifelong process. And for our covenant youth, it starts from the, days, the day that they are born. If they're born into a Christian family, if they're born into the church, it starts then. And our prayer for our children, as we always pray when we have a baptism in this church, is that there will never be a day that they don't know the Lord. We don't want them to have to go through a crisis conversion. Because that means that they have experienced hell in this life prior to it. We don't want that for them. We want them always, always to look back on their lives and know that they knew the Lord. Without a doubt. And so we are treating our covenant children like disciples, and therefore it is right to baptize them even as infants because that marks the beginning of their discipleship. That's a charitable judgment toward our children. We ought to admit that many, if not most times, our children are better Christians than we are. Come to an evening service. Listen to these kids singing the hymns. You will be put to shame. <laughs> over your feeble attempts at praising the Lord. Put to shame in a good way. If we are doing highlight reels of our day-to-day -day lives, who would come out better, you or your children? Tell the truth. Now, this doesn't mean that our children don't need to hear the gospel. That's why you're in a church where the gospel is faithfully proclaimed. Why? Because not only do our children need to hear it, but you need to hear it. I need to hear it. We need... Weekly, regular doses, not even doses. We need to be saturated in gospel preaching and teaching. That is how disciples are made. I learned from my time in the Marine Corps that if you treat people like heathens, they will act like heathens. The Marines, I think out of all of the branches, even greater than the Navy, have a reputation for hard drinking. The Marine Corps, it, it originated in a tavern after all. And many Marines feel a strong personal responsibility to drink irresponsibly on a regular basis. They have a reputation to uphold, even if it's a bad reputation. If we treat our covenant youth like they're heathens, there's a decent chance they're going to act like heathens. People tend to act, not always, but often, Perhaps sometimes people tend to act according to the expectations of those placing those expectations on them. And so the Lord indicates that we ought to treat our children otherwise. We see that in 
Matthew chapter 19, our scripture reading. Jesus' disciples made the mistake of treating little children like heathens in front of Jesus himself. And how did Jesus react to it? Well, Matthew 19, 13 says, When parents started bringing their children to Jesus so that he could lay hands on them, the disciples rebuked the parents. But then the disciples in turn were rebuked themselves by Jesus. He said, Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And then Jesus laid his hands on these Children, he blessed these children. Can you imagine being held in the arms of your Savior on his lap and he places his hand on your head and blesses you? And then he departed. He did not treat these covenant youth like heathens. He showed them that he loved them by giving them a blessing. In the Westminster Confession of Faith's chapter on effectual calling, we read these words. These words which have proved to be a great comfort to parents who have lost children. Elect infants dying in infancy are regenerated and saved by Christ through the Spirit who worketh when and where and how he pleaseth. Now, the Confession of Faith is not saying that every infant that dies in infancy is elect and therefore is saved, is regenerated. not saying that. But we don't know how limited or how expansive the scope of that phrase is. Elect infants. We don't know, do we? It's best to have a charity, a judgment of charity. Isn't it? Especially when dealing with thinking about our covenant youth. Those who are born into a believing household. So ordinarily, yes, God works through the outward means, the preaching of the word, to draw people to himself in faith. But there are extraordinary cases, and praise the Lord, there are, such as with an elect infant or with someone with mental disabilities that prevents that person from being outwardly called by the ministry of the word, where God regenerates in the absence of the outward call of the preached word. There's some who simply cannot understand the gospel But they grow up in the church. And you can tell they love the Lord. Does that mean they're unregenerate? I mean, they can't possibly be saved because they lack the mental faculties to understand the gospel? It doesn't. Remember how unborn John leapt in his mother Elizabeth's womb when Mary, who was pregnant with Jesus, came near to visit. John, before he was born, knew that he was in the presence of the Lord. Now, with our covenant children, we don't know with certainty that they are saved, but we should give to them the benefit of the doubt until they prove otherwise. That's what we do with everyone else in the church. Why do we make exceptions for our our covenant youth? For the mothers and the fathers who have lost babies in pregnancy, or who have lost young children before they had a chance to profess faith publicly, I encourage you to put your hope like David in God's covenant promises. When we lost our first child in pregnancy, we were amazed at the number of women, the number of parents in this church who had gone through the same thing. You are not alone. God loves you, 
and he loves your babies. And you can rest assured that you will go to be with them. You will see them when you go to be with the Lord. There is good reason to believe that they are there with him because God has said that the promise of the covenant is for you and for your children. Jesus, the good shepherd, he takes his little lambs into his arms and he carries them lovingly. He did not turn them away and even said, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And he encouraged adults to become like little children in their simple faith. And their trust in the Lord. Brothers and sisters, remember this. The Lord is far more faithful to keep his promises than you or I will ever be. And he keeps his promises. But he also keeps your and my promises as well. Our end of the bargain. He does it for us. And that is good news. That's the gospel. And it's a blessing for you and for me. Amen. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Father, what a blessing and a comfort your word is to us. Even those tough portions of it. What a blessing it is to know that those who have gone before us, whether or not they were able to publicly profess faith in Christ, those who have died when young, the blessing it is to know that we will go to be with them. We will stand before your throne. We will worship you with our loved ones. Lord, we pray that you would continue to pour out blessings, to give comfort to those who are experiencing loss and grief. We pray that you would help us all who grieve to grieve in a way that is not destructive or harmful for us. We pray that you would help us to grieve as those who have hope. The hope of the resurrection, the hope of new life in Christ, and the hope that Jesus Christ will return. And he will bring us safely home. But we pray that you would bless us all and keep us in this life. No matter, no matter the sorrows that we experience. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us to love you with all our heart, soul, strength, and mind, and to love one another. We pray this in the name of our Savior, Christ Jesus our Lord, who died in our place, your only begotten Son. Amen.